Hi, I'm April. And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're also over on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. You can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst and all other podcast providers too. You can also find us on Spotify now by searching for The Thirst and you can give us an email if you would like to. The address is thethirstpod at gmail.com. We've also got a blog where we share links to news and anything else we might mention in the episode and the url for that is the thirstpod.wordpress.com and you can also check the show notes on the episode thing platform provider platform provider that's the thing um so this is episode 52 yeah i've got nothing there's not a lot for 52 i have okay. to say the b52s known for love shack Classic. of course and 52nd street is an album by billy joel Great, love Pretty that. much the only trivia out there that I could find. Fine, fair. Have you got any people? Obviously, I have found some celebrities that are 52. Go so, on. So, Will Smith. Sure. Jennifer Aniston. Love that for her. Yeah, lovely. Mariah Carey. Hugh Jackman. Yep. Paul Rudd. A god. A god. Doesn't look 52, doesn't look as 52. we all know. Uh, my personal favourite, Norman Reedus. <laughs> Does look 52, I suppose. Potentially looks older. Hot. Still hot. Uh, Owen Wilson. Love him. Uh, my other favourite, Gillian Anderson. And uh, Lucy Lou. <laughs> Lucy Lou? Yeah. Brilliant. Well I, done to all those people. I think JLo's 52 as well. Is she? No, yeah. she's not. I think she is. I think that was on Why a... didn't she come up on my list when Be- I Googled because it? Because she's only just turned 52. Oh, so maybe when I looked like two days ago, yeah. she was actually 51. Yeah. She might have been on our previous episode. Yeah. Unless I've just aged her. Anyway, I'm not going to Google it. That's some, someone else's job. Yeah. So, 52. Um, notable, we are in the same room We're as each other. We're actually in the same room as each other for the first time in 18 months. Not the first time that we've ever been in a room e- with each other, but, you know, podcasty podcast stuff. This is our reunion. We're doing it on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Pretty Can't fun. believe I haven't seen you at all for a year and a half. <laughs> at all. What a pleasure it's been. Isn't that weird? It's really odd. And we've already had to close the window because there are noisy dogs outside. There were so. dogs barking. Maybe they're excited. Yeah, I think they're pretty excited that we're uh, back on it. And now I have to record the podcast not underneath my own duvet in bed anymore. So... I mean, you could do that if you want. Instead, I'll probably do it on your bed because I always end up migrating. Yeah, fine. At some point from sitting to lying. Uh, You do you. Yeah. Whatever suits you. Um, So let's do some news. Some things have happened in the last sort of few weeks. I guess a big one is the Cannes Film Festival. I'm going to say Cannes and not Cannes. Cannes. The Cannes Film Festival. If I say Cannes, I think of James Cannes. The James Cannes Film Festival. I'd go. Yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think actually, all jokes aside, I think someone did curate a James Caan film festival. Oh, I wasn't mocking them. No, that was showing films from his checkered history. Well, imagine if you put on a James Caan film festival and you didn't show any James Caan. Anyway, Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> Sorry. Good Lord. Segue. So it was the 74th annual Cannes Film Festival. It took place from the 6th to the 17th of July after having been originally scheduled to be taking place from the 11th to 22nd of May. Um, they moved it back a couple of months. I assume because of COVID. COVID reasons. COVID reasons. Everything. That's the reason for everything, isn't it, at the moment? So uh, Spike Lee was invited to be the head of the jury for the festival for the second time. But second time in the sense that after the COVID pandemic in France tanked his plans last year to have him be head of the jury. Because it didn't happen last year. Because there was a pandemic. 
COVID reasons. COVID reasons. So the jury this year comprised of Spike Lee, of course, um, Matty Diop, who's a French Senegalese director. Um, she's famous for Atlantics. Mylene Farmer, who's a Canadian French singer-songwriter. Apparently, when I Googled this, she is the biggest selling French singer ever, I think. And yet I've never heard of I've her. never heard of her. So sorry. Good for her. Uh, Mackie Gyllenhaal. Have heard of her. Have heard of her, my sister-in-law. <laughs> Jessica Hausner, who's an Austrian director and screenwriter. Uh, Melanie Laurent, who was obviously most known to us probably for being in Glorious Bastards. Clebo Mendoca Fijo, who's a Brazilian director and critic. Tahir Rahim, who's a French actor um, known for A Prophet. And Song Kang-ho, of course, who is a South Korean actor known for his appearance in Bong Joon-ho films. He was, of course, in Parasite. So attendees who went to the festival were subject to daily saliva COVID testing to get in to the screenings. I really liked the fact that they had to spit in a pot. and Isn't then funny? I I saw someone called it an odyssey of spit which i quite liked um and then for some reason i was just thinking i'd quite like to for reasons that i can't quite work out i'd quite like to see benicio del toro spit into a pot is my takeaway from from that just so you know it's i mean a lot of people were complaining about having to do it but also you're at a film festival during a pandemic just all be embarrassed together guys so, it's alright is I, that the worst they've ever had to do is spit into a for me pot that seems like it's more manageable than having a, a giant swab up the nose swab up the nose it's better than having to sit in a car park getting a PCR test and like gagging whilst a man watches you through the window which it, is something I did two weeks ago it so. could always be worse I'd rather spit in a pot it could always be worse so um, lots of films were showing at the festival of course there's been a bit of a backlog of things because a lot of stuff was delayed last year for covid reasons covid reasons um so french film director uh, lias carax's musical film annette was the opening film of the festival um i think we've briefly talked about annette it's the adam driver marianne cotillard sparks musical opera is um, this the film in which adam driver sings and gives cunnilingus at the same time maybe he does Maybe he doesn't. Who can say? Who can say? So Annette opened the festival and there were lots of other standout titles showing in competition. Um, so you've got things like Bergman Island, which is Mia Hansen Love's most recent film. Bernadetta, which is the Paul Verhoeven lesbian nun drama. The French Dispatch, of course, by Anderson, Red Rocket, Sean Baker. You also had things like After Yang, The Souvenir Part 2, Stillwater, Cow, Andrea Arnold's film about a cow yes and then the, also the a24 val kilmer documentary of course which baffled intrigued excited hope you had a lovely time hope you had a lovely time so winners so the palm door went to titan which is directed by julia docanau who became the second female director to win the award and the first to win not jointly with another director i don't understand how they give awards to two people at the same time for two separate things but maybe the oscars should start doing that yeah well no don't we're gonna run into all kinds of just they'll just be giving awards to everyone um the thing with titane winning the palm door is that at the ceremony spike lee committed a huge blooper by accidentally announcing the festival's top prize at the start of the night instead of the end there is a very funny video of him doing it and then like the rest of the jury sat around him, reacting, almost in slow-mo to him just being like, oh yeah, Totone Fully one. dropping a bollock. Whoops. So, yes, character won for Best Director, Best Actress was Renata Renazir for the Worst Person in the World, Best Actor was Caleb Landry-Jones for Nitrum, and also the other award I just wanted to mention for Comedy Value was the Palm Dog Award, which is an award that's given every year to the best dog that appears in Is a that film. a real thing? Yeah, for 20 years. They've been doing that for 20 yep. years? So this year... Year, the prize went to Rosie 
Dora and Snowbear for their appearance in the souvenir part two. Notable because they are Tilda Swinton's dogs. What? What if there aren't any dogs in any films that year? And then there's no dog award awarded. But I think the odds of there being a dog in at least one film is pretty high. Anyway, Tilda Swinton accepted this award on behalf of Joanna Hogg. Tilda wore the winning dog collar around her neck because she's such a champ, um, which leads me nicely on to the main highlight of the festival, was seeing famous people in public on the red carpet. Yes, that was quite nice. So that was a real highlight, I think. Actual red carpets, the photo of Timmy, Wes Anderson, Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray becoming a bit of a meme, um, and also just the general friendship of Tilda and Timmy. That was yeah. so delightful. That was so nice. They're like ultimate lesbian couple at that, aren't they? Thing. It was wonderful. Just love seeing them together. They share the same agent, so I assume they've known each other for quite a while, but we've never really seen them in person interacting no. like that. So that was extremely nice. They were both very well dressed, actually. They were. Timmy wearing Tom Ford, which is slightly different for him. Quite shiny. I liked it. Um, yeah, it was nice. Uh, he was shouting about queens, just doing things that were like extremely embarrassing and cringe. So he hasn't hasn't gained any cool since this pandemic. Really. I've missed it. I've missed him being embarrassing. There's something quite comforting knowing yeah. that he will always lower the tone somewhat. 100%. So I'm quite into that. And lowering the tone in a charming way. Yeah, fine. Uh, got to see Timmy and Adrian Brody as well. That was quite nice. That was. A- personal highlight for me who had a person who has complicated feelings re adrian brody Mm -hmm. tall spindly men aging very well i feel he is aging brilliantly yeah looking lovely so that was that was very good wasn't it loved it we had adam driver who well we got to see him smoking inside a venue because he clearly doesn't know what else to do with himself when people are applauding i don't think there is anything that is cooler but nothing that is more repulsive than smoking confusing it is very very confusing so those were like two highlights for me low lights bella hadid's weird lung necklace at the premiere of three floors was just like i'm confused by it i think the idea of it is interesting but I also don't really understand Bella Hadid, so the whole package together. I don't even me. know why she's there. No, I think she's just rich. Okay. So, Good also, no one's been able to do anything for a year, so I think it's a bit like everyone turning up to the open even envelope. Because they just, they they just want to be there. And she was just like a no-smoking advert or something. Apparently. Okay. Good for her. I thought Caleb Landry-Jones looked like he possibly needed some assistance for most of... I hope he's okay. Yes. Are you all right? That was my big takeaway from when we were looking at those pictures, like sharing them back and forth. It's a bit squiffy. Are you okay, Caleb? Looked like me after like quite a long car ride, which has made me feel quite ill. Looked a bit green around the gills, I would say. And he's, he's quite a pale man anyway. So anyway, I would say that he looks worse than on a car journey. Well, I don't know. You never looked that bad. I don't know. You saw me after Ashley's wedding. So yeah, so they were some of my highlights. It was just nice to see people like doing, I don't want to say normal things because there's absolutely nothing normal. No, it's like the most bizarro thing in the whole world. But it just did feel a bit like, oh, okay, films are coming out again. Normal for us to be able to sit and watch that, like, unfold on Twitter. Normal for people like us who enjoy consuming, like, celebrity content in that manner when everything's been slightly strange for the last year and all of those things have been so limited. Like, last year, the only festival that I think went ahead pretty much from about March onwards was the Venice Film Festival in Mm -hmm. September last year. Nothing else took place in person. So it was just sort of quite nice to see all these people gathered, especially taking films that have been delayed for an entire year. 
like to see the like cast of French Dispatch. Oh my just, god, that's been going on forever. It's just nice to know that actually, like, we might get to see this stuff. Soon, yeah, some hopefully. people have actually seen it now. Yeah, so, so a nice slice of normality. Well done, everyone involved. Congrats. On the topic of Adam Driver, mm-hmm. can we just discuss the fact that as of recording one day ago, Burberry released a new campaign featuring Adam Driver, aka the most mysterious man in the world to me. And in the promo trailer, I guess you'd call it a trailer for this new men's fragrance, Burberry Hero, Driver runs and dives into the sea and then he's swimming with a horse while FKA Twigs' two weeks plays over the top. And then he appears to actually turn into a centaur. So uh, the video was directed by Jonathan Glazer and then the accompanying photos as well um, were taken by Mario Sorrenti. So Driver was announced as the face of this campaign earlier in the month. And I like this because it says it was a gig he was, quote unquote, very happy to be working on. I just don't imagine that Adam Driver's ever said he's actually happy about anything. My thing with Adam Driver is that he, like, is gives the impression, and by all accounts from what I've read about him, is just extremely serious about his craft. Does a lot of, like charity stuff off the back of his of being famous like uses it to his advantage but like he famously like never watches himself back like at premieres and stuff normally Mm. he just leaves like he doesn't watch anything he's in so the idea that he's like extremely pumped to be in a Burberry ad I'm just so pleased to be topless in this ad bullshit what a load of shit I call it I call bullshit Adam Driver this man is not smiling about that no No way there was a really good quote no offence because I know it's very serious when you develop fragrances and things but uh, they always have like that little fluffy kind of quote from the creative director or whatever talking about like the moods and the tones and the feelings of the piece and Ricardo Tisky had said I'm so thrilled to have worked with the amazing Adam Driver to embody Burberry hero for the house he has this incredible depth in articulating what masculinity means today how strengths can be subtle and emotions can empower this is a good bit though our founder Thomas Burberry was a man who also celebrated that balance using a powerful but romantic horse (laughs) Does this make Adam Driver a powerful but romantic horse? Yes, 100%. Because he is a centaur. He does have, like, Bojack Horseman energy. Oh, I don't so. Do you fancy Bojack Horseman? <laughs> no. I feel like you do. No. I'm actually I... quite surprised you said no. No, I relate to Bojack Horseman because he is sad about many things. I guess that kind of is like Adam Driver then. I just think he is a sad horse. He's just a powerful but sad and romantic horse. Yeah, sure. Makes My sense. My other question is, why is he holding the horse <laughs> so hard in that photo? <laughs> there are a lot of things about that video that like make me deeply uncomfortable. Not only the use of FK Twix, and like, no offence, but Two Weeks is like the horniest song in yeah, the world. Yeah, it's a very, that's a deliberate. It's a very erotically charged song. So to put that over the top of that is a bit like sweat inducing. It is quite a lot. I had a good handful on that horse's mane. <laughs> the thing with Adam Driver, which I know we've talked about again and again, is just that I find it so funny that he is like so revered as a handsome hunk now. Because I remember when Girls first came out and he was this like absolute fucking weirdo. And like saying publicly that you thought Adam in Girls was yeah. hot. People would just be like, what the fuck is wrong like, with you? Like, what are you talking about? You've got, like, Brad Pitt out here or whatever. Yeah, like, he's um, extremely... Like, you've got brain worms. There's something wrong with you. He's he hot- is, like, the Rochester of a Jane Eyre epic, though, 100%, I feel. He's, yeah. like, big and tall and gangly and yeah, tortured. Yeah, not, and- not classically handsome. 
Not classically handsome, but in fact, extremely hot. Um, in other relevant to our interests news, I mean, that also implies that we don't just pick and choose news that isn't relevant to our interests. But anyway, on the 6th of July, a great thing happened. Tell me more. And that was that HBO dropped the trailer for season three of the greatest TV show in the world, Succession, which is due to return in the autumn. Now, I was personally very excited about this. Pretty much watched it on a loop for about an hour. It's only about a minute and a half long, so that's a lot of watching. That's a lot of watches. Um, Personal highlights for me, Kendall saying, you are Kendall fucking Roy into a mirror. Great. Kendall's back. Siblings seem deeply stressed by this, especially Shiv. Roman says, whoa, Nelly, in a way that I know that I've talked about at length with many people. FBI agents, lots of rage. Tom and Greg, are they at war? Logan being the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> Nicholas Brattel's score. And also just the idea that it's returning and we've got things to look forward to, such as Alexander Skarsgård, Adrian Brody. Oh my God. Not in the trailer, but on the horizon. Um, So I was personally elated by this exciting news. And another piece of exciting news is that you have finally started to watch Succession. Yeah, I think pretty much off the back of this trailer dropping... Me having to go into self-isolation because I got the dreaded COVID app ping and you just telling me like you need to watch Succession, you need to watch Succession. Finally started, got through the first season in less than a week so that was pretty good. Fine. I think I watched it all in 24 hours which Ooh, was a deeply stressful. That, that is a yeah. lot. I, I definitely it. need like some little yeah. breaks between because it's, a, it's, it's a... precisely the type of, in the same vein as like the thick of it peep show. Yeah. I need a break with those things. It's like being tickled. It's like torture for me, but like a pleasant torture. Yeah. So, um, yes, having a lovely time with it so far. So at least I know I haven't looked at the trailer. I deliberately haven't looked at the trailer. Probably wouldn't mean much to me because we're only just going into season two. I don't want to ruin it for myself. So... All I can say is quite fancy Kendall, obviously. Obviously. Might finally understand a lot of references you make on Twitter. And you can send me all your memes now. Isn't it great? Finally. Finally, the succession-specific You finally won me over. So uh, it's been a a good week for it. I've really enjoyed it so far. And I think Wesley is obsessed. So kindred spirit there. It is great. I was really worried that I would have hyped it too much and that you'd absolutely hate it. Um, so I was pretty relieved when you were like, yeah, no, we are enjoying it because that could have gone very, very badly. For oh, no, course. it's great. It's really good. Very clever. Very enjoyable. As I say, it's just it's like that particular brand of like cringe. I have to take in slightly small doses, yeah. like more than two episodes back to back. I start feeling pretty whacked. So a uh, couple of night and I can get through it in a week. Nice and uh, nice and ready and tidy for season three. When is season three out? I think it's it's HBO have said fall. So I think probably <laughs> September, October time. Cool. Um, maybe we'll even cover it on the podcast. I think we probably could, you know. It's very exciting. And finally, one more thing that we are looking forward to that we have mentioned quite a few times before. But just to reiterate that we are still waiting and hoping to see it. So another June trailer. June. June dropped. The latest is that this film has been bumped to the 22nd of October from the 1st of October fingers crossed we might actually see it this side of god i hope so 2021 yes yeah, so warner brothers dropped this trailer on the 22nd of july uh, it's three minutes long and it showcases lots of new footage from the film that we hadn't seen before the first trailer was last september which is actually scary because was in really? my mind it was like two months ago yeah christ yeah whole year we got to see more of zendaya we got to see her relationship with timothee as paul uh, we even got to see them snog a little bit so i was pretty happy We've seen that there's some snippets of humour there. There'll be some light relief during the film, which is nice. 
what else can I say, really? Can I just say yeah. that I'm really struggling with the fact that main characters, one of them is called Paul. Yes. And one of them is called Duncan Idaho. Yeah. I, I feel like Frank Herbert wasn't like... I don't think names were his strong point. Paul. The character posters that came out connected to this, by the way. So they released 14 character posters, which is a lot. That's a crazy amount of posters. Some of the character posters were of people that I had like completely no. forgotten were even in the yeah. film. It's a huge number of people. Quite apart from the fact that the posters are a bit weird because they're quite dark and the way they've put the names on the poster. It just sits very weirdly and it does mean that like Timothy Chalamet's just got a big Paul, Paul just sitting in the middle of his face. It did make me realise that like Game of Thrones, I'm definitely never going to remember everyone's name in this film and I'm going to get really confused. I enjoyed the posters in the sense that it was just nice to look at people's faces. They aren't very interesting. Oh yeah, everyone's very attractive. And it's like slightly embarrassing to be presented with the people's names in that way. Yeah. Um, I did enjoy the Oscar Isaac one. Of course. For obvious reasons. He's looking lovely and beardy. Quite concerned that I fancy Josh Brolin in this. I literally had oh, written really? down. Uh, I had written down, would you kiss Josh Brolin? I would kiss Josh Brolin, yeah, specifically in this. I think generally I wouldn't. it wouldn't be off limits. But No, but it's, it's like a dead set here, yeah. I think, in Duneland. In Frank Herbert world, I would, I would give him a kiss. The only other thing I wanted to add is that I just still think that the sandworms are the most embarrassing thing in the world. Do you think they're embarrassing? I just, honestly, any time they're on screen, I... I feel wince. Oh, I find them quite scary. I just think they're just a bit embarrassing. They're giants. They're yeah, but, giant worms. They're yeah, scary. Yeah, but I just think that, you know, when we had the conversation about A Quiet Place 2? Yes. And I said that, like, the minute that you make me have to look at something so relentlessly, oh. it just becomes less... They're just a bit embarrassing. I think the sheer size of it scares me. So. Yeah, 100% wouldn't want to come across it in a desert if I was ever in a desert hanging out with Oscar Isaac. You're not but, scared by tremors then? Uh, yeah, but I just... There's something embarrassing about them. I can't oh. I can't explain. I'm that. firmly here on the side of giant sandworms, so uh, well, we can battle it out at a later <laughs> Great. So the film is hopefully also getting its premiere at Venice Film Festival this September, so we should know what people think of it pretty damn soon. Fingers crossed for some positive reviews uh, did you also know there's a prequel tv series in development no one asked for that did they i just don't want to have to do any more television adjacent to films my tolerance for it is waning we'll probably come on to this i think we really but will. i just can tv just be tv can films be just be t- films. Like, well, I don't need a prequel. I can read Wikipedia. <laughs> thing is, I've, I'm firmly not on the side. Of, I don't like prequels. Like, prequels are the thing that happen when people run out of ideas a lot of the time. I just, I can read on Wikipedia what happened before. You rarely need a prequel you for don't things. Need it. There's, I mean, there's definitely going to be examples now that, that are like really solid, great prequels. Yeah, but but the... most prequels are unnecessary. And I'm also not, I'm not necessarily adverse to like offshoots. Like, The Mandalorian, for example, is like, I feel like it's a pretty solid. TV show, which is obviously a spin-off of the wider Star Wars universe. What is the Dune prequel going to be? Like, Origin of Spice? Spice Origin. Origin of Spice. Unless it's just Oscar Isaac maybe hanging out with Josh Brolin. Yeah. That would be... Pre-baby Paul. Pre-Paul. Pre-Paul. I can't believe... Paul Atreides. I can't believe his name is Paul. Also, the fact... Someone needed a character name development workshop, I feel, but... Also, just the fact that the implication of... Oscar Isaac and Timmy being related. Timothy does get cast with like the best dads historically. He's done really well for himself. A thing I realised yesterday is that when I was watching a film with Nicolas Cage in, the way that 
Timmy talks is just reminds me of Nicolas Cage. Do you think he'll turn into Nicolas Cage when he's older? I hope not. I wish more for him. But they've just got a very funny I'm, similar I'm open pattern. to it. <laughs> You're open to it. Yeah, you why want not? uh Timmy to do Ghost Rider. Yeah. Yeah, well, Wicker Man. It's regular work. <laughs> it's regular work. Anyway, June. Can't wait. June soon. June soon. So, on to what we've been enjoying recently. Um, I briefly mentioned just then my, um, I don't know, confusion, disdain. Utter disdain, contempt, <laughs> anger. Towards movie-adjacent television seasons. So, with that in mind, we thought we would talk about Loki. <laughs> yeah, why not? We did, obviously, cover The Falcon and the Winter Soldier in terms of MCU TV. Um, we didn't cover WandaVision. That's because no, I haven't watched it. It's fine. There's no real loss there for you. But Loki is something that I think probably was more of a mutual interest for us both. Maybe more than The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Just in the sense that we quite like Tom Hiddleston. Both fancy Loki. Both fancy Loki. That's basically what it is. Um, so if you are unfamiliar with Loki, I'm just going to get really stressed out with how many times I have to say Loki. There are many Lokis in this there show There are many well. Lokis in this show. Loki, so Loki, 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 Loki. Loki. So Loki is an American TV series created by Michael Waldron. Waldron is known for Community, Rick and Morty. That was the part that made me wince. Um, He's also the writer of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which is an upcoming MCU film. It's obviously based on the Marvel comics featuring the character of the same name. That's Loki, just in case you missed out. Um, So Waldron served as the head writer and Kate Heron was the director for the first season. She's known for a lot of things TV-wise, including sex education, which we have mentioned before in the past. Um, So Tom Hiddleston reprises his role as Loki from the film series with Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Winmi Masaka, Eugene Cordero, Tara Strong, Owen Wilson, Sophie DiMartino, Sasha Lane, Jack Veal, Richard E. Grant and others also starring filming began in january 2020 in atlanta but it was halted for covid reasons um and production resumed in september last year and completed in december it premiered on june the 9th um and has six episodes and concluded on the 14th of july and it's part of the phase four of the mcu i'm not going to go over the different phases you can google that for yourself still means nothing to me so a vague premise to the show is after stealing the Tesseract during the events of the Avengers in 2012 an alternate version of Loki is brought to the mysterious Time Variance Authority a bureaucratic organisation that exists outside of time and space and which monitors the timeline they give Loki a choice face being erased from existence due to being quote a time variant or help fix the timeline and stop a greater threat. Loki ends up trapped in his own crime thriller travelling through time. I will do a spoiler warning here because we are going to be covering all six episodes because we did watch them i think it's obviously going to be slightly evident that we are going to want to talk about things that do ruin the plot of loki and because it has only finished sort of relatively recently if you are thinking of watching loki maybe put a pin in this come back to it because i don't want to ruin it for you i know how annoying it is when people ruin things especially marvel stuff so all of that in mind what were your expectations of the show what was your prior relationship to loki in advance of this i know you're obviously of the two of us the less marvel invested so once again like with falcon and the winter soldier i feel like you're coming at it from a a different probably more measured perspective Yes, I think I've said time and time again that I'm quite a passive follower of the Marvel films. Uh, I've seen some stuff, others I haven't seen. So my day-to-day knowledge is not particularly detailed and I certainly don't have a lot of 
uh, awareness around timelines and the expanded kind of extended universe and things like that. However, the Thor films are probably my favourite of the bunch. Love Chris, love Tom. Love him. Just great times. Chris I think. Himsworth. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. I think they're both uh, extremely lovable characters, so always here for them. So I was naturally happy, interested in the idea of a Loki standalone series. The trailer looked pretty interesting, like great set pieces, kind of surrealist. Just anticipated that it would bring some sort of chaos that would be fun, really. And I can understand the potential of having a character that's lived for thousands of years and has seen and experienced a lot of history and, you know, has got a rich timeline that the show creators could really dig into. So I was definitely intrigued and felt like I would watch this and be more invested in this than maybe some of the other shows out there. How about you? Yeah, I feel like I was sort of... Of the three TV shows that were announced around the same time at one of the Disney Marvel comic expo type things, I felt like Loki was the one that I had like middling hype for in advance, Mm. largely because of really liking Tom Hiddleston in that role. I've never been like a super, super Loki fan, but he's Mm. always like one of the characters I've enjoyed watching like in the Thor films, in the Avengers films. Hiddleston does such a good It's such a great performance. I just isn't like it? he embodies him in such an interesting, like fun way. So actually I was quite pleased to get the opportunity to like maybe spend some more time with him. So I was sort of like not fussed, but I was also quite intrigued as to what they were gonna do with it. Mostly because Loki has got this sort of rich history within the comics that they were gonna be able to pick and choose from, like mm. say. So um yeah so hyped not overhyped intrigued so bearing all of that in mind we kind of watched the episodes did we watch the first two together from a distance i think we did we did didn't we and then we watched the third one i think and then did the rest of them from a distance didn't we so um they were weekly weren't they, they? Were weekly so it was, yeah um... it was on a wednesday um so what were your general impressions after watching it did you enjoy it bearing in mind you didn't really have any like huge lofty expectations for it what was your kind of general experience of having watched it overall i did enjoy it but with a few caveats i think as you said like tom hiddleston is such a lovable loki and he's the villain you're absolutely rooting for and it's a really nice opportunity to see a fan favorite character developed outside of his relationship to his brother and the events of Endgame. So, you know, we've always seen Loki really in relation to Thor and this very much brought him out of that. And you also get the sense of him sort of boiled down to the essence of what is great about him. So like he's very arrogant and mischievous and clever, but also kind of a bit of a dummy. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you, you got to play around with all of those characteristics, which I really liked and that the show really talked about kind of what is a Loki and yeah. his identity and the idea of of him as a hero and a villain and his sense of self and the acceptance and guilt over sort of past actions and things like that. So I thought that was a really enjoyable, like his performance is always great. So I really, really enjoyed watching him in that performance. And I thought the casting generally was pretty great, actually. Like Loki had great chemistry with pretty much everyone. So Owen Wilson as Mobius. I don't even even remember the last time I saw Owen Wilson as something in something really. But that kind of buddy film dynamic Mm -hmm. was really, really good. And also with Sylvie was uh, really good. Richard E. Grant, lovely to see. Uh, Jonathan Majors, great to see as well. 
So like all of the components were really good, I guess. So the visual elements were really strong, like the it's set so, design. It's so stylish. Very, very, very stylish. Like you could tell from the trailer, yeah. but it it really is that kind of, especially the um the TVA, that kind of like retro dated. It's really it's really brutalist, really Soviet looking in yes. its architecture. Loads of the tech I noticed is like super analog. So it's mm. as though like yes, it is. Isn't it's it? as though the digital age didn't happen. So the most advanced things are analog. It's like working in, for the council. It is. It's really like um, anachronistic in that it sense. Is. I saw someone describe it, describe it as like Loki meets Brazil, which yes felt quite fitting. Yeah. So yeah, that was really strong, and the score really was really strong it's as so well. Good. So the score by Natalie Holt was great. The kind of use of the theremin, and I found myself really paying attention to that and kind of savoring it when it was being used. So those were the like elements that I really liked. What did you think overall? I think I was really taken by how in intrigued I was almost immediately by it and I think a lot of that comes down to the aesthetics and that immediate relationship that you get between Loki Hiddleston's Loki and Owen Wilson as Mobius because Mm -hmm. that first episode is almost like I don't want to describe it as like a bit of a highlights reel but because Loki's sort of taken to the TVA and then he has this sort of not interrogation because Mm. Mobius isn't really interrogating him but they're locked in this room and like Mobius is sort of like taking him through the motions of like explaining what the TVA do and like why he's there and he's just showing him clips Mm. from like previous films you know Loki things he's done and I really liked the way that immediately this sort of like relationship and back and forth was building up between mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. and it, I think you're right in that the performances in it are really really strong and I think immediately like it became apparent that those two in particular were going to be posited opposite one another in like a buddy cop yeah, yeah, dynamic like good cop bad cop yeah and it, it sort of has that like crime procedural type tone to it's it it's got like a weird like almost like a shape-shifting tone like yeah it starts with this kind of like buddy comedy and then you've got like this wizard of oz-esque quests mm-hmm. that it kind of turns into it's got all these sort of almost like genre elements that it keeps shifting in and out of doesn't it it's really like it's sort of film noir-y mm-hmm. in a sense um i noticed that when i was like reading around it in prep for this episode, I noticed that both um, Michael Waldron and Kate Heron referenced things like David Fincher. They mentioned Seven. Yeah. They mentioned Zodiac because of the time period. You can that see that. Of, um, when I read that, I was like, actually, a lot of the choices they were making makes sense, particularly if you consider that, like, the one consistent thing is it is sort of a bit of a procedural in that they're trying to find something out. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned The Wizard of Oz as well because that, it felt like a really obvious, like, the man behind the curtain. Yeah, because yeah. They're questing to see who's, like, in charge of all of this. Yeah. It's also, like, Blade Runnery as well, I suppose. Yeah, very true, yeah. With that, like, like I said, the anachronistic future mm. feel of it. Um, it reminded me of parts of Mad Men as well in terms of like the workplace drama because mm-hmm. the period is so strange like the tones of it like there's a lot of browns and oranges and like it seems very like 60s 70s feeling with mm-hmm. its aesthetics the score as well I'm glad that you mentioned that because I just like it was the one thing that I just loved about it so much mm-hmm. so consistently and it's just so atmospheric Mm -hmm. set the tone for things and i read that natalie holt had cited wendy carlos's scores Mm. so the work that she did on a clockwork orange and things like the shining as well which makes sense from a synthy point of view so it's like all these like interesting like very specific time frame 
touch points for it, which mm-hmm. I think actually makes sense from a visual point of view. And that was what I really loved about it was the visuals of it. And again, one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that it gives Loki this opportunity to be developed as a character because mm-hmm. we have always known him alongside Thor. Whether that's It whether... is in relation to his brother, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really? whether, whether they're working together, whether they're working against each other, whether he's being positioned as like the villain as he was in the first Avengers film and I like the fact that you do get this development of who he is like the whole point of like it's like you say what makes a Loki a Loki Mm. it's essentially like him learning to come to terms with who he is like on an independent level and Mm. I think that why that works so well for me is like not to harp on about it but it is just Tom Hiddleston's the fact that he is able to do this like Loki is like a comedic, light-hearted, mm-hmm. you know, mischievous relief, but also he's got the chops to do all the dramatic side of yeah. stuff as well, mm. which, you know, considering his background and in, in all of the other things that he's worked on, it's just so interesting to me how his career, he's ended up in this, like, Marvel lane. Yeah. But, like, he's worked with people like Joanna Hogg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like, you know, he's done Shakespeare prolifically, so it's just very funny. Walking away from this, I don't think that I would have enjoyed it half as much if there was any other person playing Loki. Like, oh, th- absolutely not. I think about this so often with regards to Loki is that I wouldn't care about him half as much as I sort of have ended up doing so without Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, he is that role, I think. In terms of, like, the structure and the plot, I think why I find it so interesting when we watch this stuff together, and it's not that I feel like I know lots more, but I feel like I have... You a, do know I have a, Well, <laughs> I just have a bit more of a grasp of, like, the, I don't know... The wider The wider context scope all, yeah. of it. And I know that one of the things that we discussed while we were watching it is actually, like, the storyline. It's not that it's complex, but there is so much going on mm. that actually I, I think that... If you were a casual viewer, and the thing is, I'm not necessarily convinced that anyone ever would go to these Marvel shows without having a base knowledge of Mm. something. But I just wanted your perspective on how you found, like, the structure of it, the plot, the clarity of what was going on at any point. There's kind of, like, two things there for me. Like, in terms of storytelling, I guess there is probably enough of a departure from what has happened, say, in, like, Endgame Mm -hmm. for you to be able to kind of get behind the show in the that current moment of time yeah and because the showrunners are playing with time and narrative sequence Mm -hmm. they've kind of got a free card to do whatever they want they don't have to be too bogged down with some of the wider context i guess but i don't know i think there's like a twofold thing for me in that a i'm actually probably personally not always a big fan of time shifting narratives anyway because i do find it hard to keep up with what's going on and i was sometimes forgetting exactly what a variant is or what happened in the episode in the week before mm-hmm. and i think there were there was so much going on that i was getting lost sometimes and i couldn't work out whether it was just the time hop the time aspect of it was making me confused or if i was missing the point because of other elements that were going on and w- were part of like a wider you know wider scene so i did get a bit confused when it came to the story it's, i i don't think for me the kind of the structure and the plot were the strongest parts it's really plot heavy and not in a way that i think is necessarily particularly clear at times like i felt like i had to watch the and some of these episodes i ended up watching twice mm. and even then on second viewings there were sometimes instances where i would then have to go and like read a plot recap yeah. or just like 
it's never remind, that good, is it? No, just remind myself to get some clarity on what was happening. I liked that it was six episodes. I think it's really interesting that it's the first of the three Marvel shows that have been released so far that, that finishes. So it, at the end of the episode six, it makes direct reference to the fact that it will be returning for a mm, second season. Mm. Whereas the others film will stand alone. Or the others film will stand alone or a choice necessarily hasn't been made. And I'm, mm. I, I'm interested in terms of why that is, whether it's because actually Loki is having to put in a lot more work to almost bridge the gap between mm. films. It Which, is. It does very much bridge a gap, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think the thing that I'm concerned about is that we are getting into a situation now where it's like if you don't watch the TV shows, mm-hmm. then when it comes to going to see the films, you've missed something. There's like yeah a missing chunk. Yeah. And because Michael Vaudrin is working on Doctor Strange, because Jonathan Majors turns up Mm -hmm. in the last episode as a character who is referred to in the show as he who remains. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah, you had to explain that entire... That was like one of those moments where it was like, okay, let me give you some context because it's actually useful to have the context. So I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, so he turns up as He Who Remains and He Who Remains in the comics is a variant of Kang the Conqueror. Kang the Conqueror is a fairly big character that they're bringing into the MCU almost to probably inevitably um, replace Thanos. And it was announced that Jonathan Majors was going to be playing Kang in mm. the Ant-Man film, which is due to come out next year as well. Mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this thing where... Where it's sort of like they're giving you little bits of, of information and plot narrative but my concern is that actually these shows are going to be used to, to pad it out and I'm not necessarily adverse to that but I do think that it's a bit like I would simply rather watch another film that then leads on to another film because those Marvel films have always bled together whether or not I think you could watch a Captain America film and then not necessarily need mm. to have seen it to understand what's happening in like Doctor Strange that film mm. in particular poor example but you know what I mean like mm. I think that sometimes they but they are also interconnected and that's the thing yeah. that with me I just felt a bit like oh it's good that they're coming back from a second season I'm really interested to see what happens with the time variant authority especially because at the end of the last episode where there's that shift Sylvie kills mm-hmm. the man you know all of that stuff and it's Loki goes back meets Mobius Mobius doesn't know who he is anymore mm-hmm. what you know so it, there's obviously been this like planet of the apes-esque mm-hmm time shift with the releasing of all the timelines but that's where it gets complicated is you're essentially by releasing or bringing into the mcu the concept of the multiverse and all these variant timelines which is like an extremely comics based thing Mm Because it's always historically been that thing where you can just... It gives you, know, you like, fr- a free pass yeah, to anything. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's just a narrative device that serves such a good function in a comic setting because anything goes. Mm-hmm. But the fact they're now starting to bring this into the MCU going forward, it feels like it's going to start overcomplicating things. And I, I think I said to you multiple times, I feel like I've reached a stage now where I just have Marvel fatigue. Yeah, and I mean, if you've got Marvel fatigue, like, and you're fairly invested, like, yeah, I think you're completely right having, like, bridging gaps or connecting TV shows and films so much that you almost have to make sure you've seen everything. I'm not... And get a Disney Plus subscription. And I don't know, I think it could get quite messy. I'm not adverse to, like, connecting the dots, but when I went to see black widow a couple of weeks ago it was really striking to me how it was the first time where i'd sat and watched an mcu film 
in the theatre. And like, I had a good time with it. I think it's five years too late, six years too late or whatever. But at the end of it, in the stinger, in the there's a character who turns up who you've only seen in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I think that mm. her presence at the end of Black Widow and her appearance in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I think is was adjusted because of COVID, because of the way that the Marvel mm. release schedule had to adjust. But it was just really striking to me where I was just like, oh, well, that character from Black Widow, Yelena, that I really enjoyed, thought Florence mm. Pugh was fucking amazing. Oh, does that now mean that she's just going to end up in one of the Marvel TV shows? Yeah. And that's a bummer when you're like, oh, you're just dragging it back to the TV again. Yeah. So it's this weird connecting a dot thing. And I feel like I've just got like burnout now because they're almost doing too much and and my experience of watching Loki unfortunately was that I was half the time I was trying to think like oh okay well I wonder where that's going to go in relation to Mm -hmm. like this film or I wonder how that's going to bear in any relevance to that film and all of that stuff and that's just that's fun but it is also like it's relentless and I think it's overkill at this point yeah and because I've got no investment in that (laughs) There needs to be enough to sustain me. I don't know. I flip-flop between thinking like like the Marvel creators are really missing a trick if they don't, you know, find ways to keep sort of casual viewers on board as well. And then I think, do they even care? They've got enough people. They've got enough people in the bag watching all of this stuff. Do they even care about casual viewers? I don't know. I think it's why the tone of it varies so wildly almost because it's like, half the time it feels like it's being pitched to an audience that Mm -hmm. already knows all of the stuff so you have an episode like I think it's episode four or five where Loki goes into the void and he's met with all of the the variants which is a really nice nod to the comics and all the different ways that Loki has been represented over the years so you've got like the classic comics Mm. version of Loki with his yellow and green outfit Mm -hmm. which is Richard E. Grant you've got President Loki you've got Mm -hmm. Kid Loki you know you've got all of these different versions which are like nods to comic bait book based versions of it but then that's also just really like i don't know it's just too much i you know like i understood some of those references but to a casual viewer it's like does that make any sense yeah um so i just think the tone of it really flip-flops back and i think that sometimes i think that the complexity of of what they're trying to do with the time stuff is at such odds with almost the like and it's not that any of the stuff that's come in the, in the MCU previously has been like simplistic. No. But it's such a big shift yeah, to suddenly expect everyone to it's take It's quite on a big board. shift from the Thor films yeah. as well. Like from what we've seen Loki doing before, yeah. which obviously is partly the point because it is that opportunity to go sort of in depth into this character. But also if there are any like, well, like me, like fair weather, I don't know, casual Thor fans that come to this, they might start watching this and just be like, It's a lot. It's a stark contrast, isn't (laughs) it? Like, it's a real difference. I don't know. Are we hurtling towards MCU saturation point? Like, is it going to get to a point where it explodes? Or is the rest of my life going to involve, like, 5,000 Marvel properties every year? I don't know. I just feel like at this stage, I... I'm starting to lose interest. Like, you've got the Eternals coming out. I just couldn't give a monkey's. No. Um, Unfortunately, you've got Shang-Chi coming out soon, um, which I'm just not particularly engaged with. I will watch the Ant-Man film, but that's because I really like Paul Rudd. Not that bothered about Doctor Strange. So I, it's interesting now because I think all my favourites have sort of been phased out. Yeah. I watched the new Spider-Man. 
But like, I don't know, I, I do think that we're at this weird saturation point with it. But Loki feels like it occupies this strange liminal space. I think you're right. Them. Um, the only other thing I just wanted to mention as well was just the thing that I did like about Loki as a series was that I think it's one of the only instances in the MCU where you actually get a take at like proper romance. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's a couple of a good articles I read about this about how that's always been the thing that the MCU sort of lacks is any like strong or at least convincing romantic mm-hmm. relationships. Obviously, you have Captain America and Peggy, but that's just sort of like I thought you were going to say and Bucky and Bucky, of course, the the strongest romance of the entire MCU. Yes, um, but like that was the thing that when we were watching it, and then Sylvie turns up, Sophie Dumartino, who I think I think she was r- great as Sylvie, yeah, and she was she a was. very well played opposite against Tom Hiddleston. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that when we were watching it, half the time we were literally like... Kiss, 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 kiss. The thing is, they had chemistry from the go, like yeah. from the start. Mad. So it was like, the second she turned up, their chemistry was so strong, it was like, oh, this is going to be a thing. Like, just, and it was quite enjoyable to watch. In terms of like Loki's actual character development, it was really interesting to watch him learning to love, even though arguably it's learning to love a variant of himself oh yeah it's classic well i say this as like i know but classic loki he's fallen in love with himself yeah 100 percent. like he sort of overcomes this like strange solitary nature the solitary status the only person he wants to be with is another version another version of himself i don't know that did really get me and i just enjoyed the like energy between the two of them yeah i think looking back at it it's just a very strange show that occupies this weird space between things and i'm really intrigued to see where they go with it but also it's made me think so much about the oversaturation and about how i think stuff being a stopgap between everything else it sort of slightly takes away from the fun of it in yeah i did and i mean there was there was fun chaos in it but there wasn't as much as i had anticipated because it was so focused on bridging this gap making sure it all kind of weaves together it starts to feel like homework Uh a little bit and that's where it becomes like less enjoyable yeah i wouldn't have stuck around like you said i wouldn't have stuck around if it wasn't for tom hiddleston no and i I think Um, it is of of the three marvel shows i think it probably is the most well executed who knows that's definitely the last one i'm watching for a while though that's fine i respect that so now onto something completely different a film that we saw semi-recently that we have mentioned quite a few times before that we heard about during the pandemic and was developed during the pandemic is In the Earth, which is a 2021 horror film written and directed by Ben Wheatley. And Ben Wheatley is, of course, best known for psychological horror films like Kill List and A Field in England. He adapted uh, High Rise and he also directed the action comedy Free Fire. And of course, he is also responsible for Rebecca, which we have spoken about before. Our favourite film of last year. In the Earth was conceived and made during the pandemic. We first heard of it back in September last year when Wheatley announced that he had written and directed this horror film over the course of 15 days in August. And the film itself stars Joel Fry, Reese Shearsmith, Hayley Squires, Alora Torture, John Hollingworth and Mark Monero. Clint Mansell, who has worked with uh, Ben Wheatley in his previous films, composed the score. Um, A very brief premise. So uh, as the world searches for a cure to a devastating virus, 
COVID related. Uh, a scientist and a park scout venture deep into the woods. As night falls, their journey becomes a terrifying voyage through the heart of darkness as the forest comes to life around them. So In the Earth had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Festival in January and it was released in the US back in April. Um, it didn't actually arrive here until June, so we saw it quite late June. Fortunately, we managed to catch a showing at the cinema, um, which I'm very glad we did. So our relationship to Ben Wheatley and sort of expectations post-Rebecca, which we have of course discussed before, we are both Ben Wheatley fans and to have a background that goes from sort of kill lists and sightseers to a field in England, high rise and free fire is just absolutely insane. He's a key figure in British horror, I would say. He yeah. has really nailed psychological folk, blackly comic elements of filmmaking um, I think we both were worried he had lost the plot a bit, thanks to Rebecca. I was slightly concerned, I will say. Rebecca was not good. No. Despite the fact that we had convinced ourselves that he was going to do a Ben He was going to make it work because Rebecca is really dark and he loves working on these very dark films. So I was waiting for the Ben Wheatley treatment and it was absolutely not. It probably also doesn't help that he signed up for Tomb Raider 2 and the second Meg film, which was just confusing my senses and throwing me completely. Yeah, so what were your expectations going into this film? Um, I was really hoping for a return to form mm -hmm. after Rebecca for the previously mentioned reasons. That film felt like such a misfire and it wasn't even that I was let down by it. I was just massively confused as to why he'd done it. I think, like I said, we did genuinely think that he was going to put like the Ben Wheatley spin on it. Mm -hmm. But actually it was just a very pedestrian adaptation of a story that didn't necessarily feel like it was bringing anything new or different oh no to it so You're right. painfully I, pedestrian yeah I just was really really hoping that this was going to be a bit of a return to the you know like a field in England kill list like sightseers like that that level of like Ben Wheatley style horror that you sort of mentioned previously mm. I really loved his adaptation of High Rise Tom Hiddleston present um, and I have a fondness for Free Fire as well so mm. I, I, like, I feel like he's, he's capable of doing like genre different stuff um, but it was it was interesting to hear that he was returning to that kind of lo-fi I don't know more indie based mm. horror stuff that he is known for mm -hmm. um, so I was sort of hopeful optimistic shall we say yeah I think I was probably the same hoping for a return to form that kind of artwork by Richard Wells when it came out had me really excited so good. this idea of a film inspired by Anne being filmed very intensely during lockdown mm. sounded like it could go back to the quote-unquote old Ben yeah. Wheatley oh, yeah. style and um, back to his sort of psychological horror roots and quite a few people the critics I know saw this film before me and seemed not to really have the words to describe what it was like so that had me very intrigued as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the experience of watching this film is probably the first thing worth talking about because there's certainly a lot to think about <laughs> and a lot to experience, especially if you're seeing this in a cinema. Mm. It is very much a sensory assault, a hallucinogenic trip. Um, not in the least because we've got literal plants giving off substances, which I assume are getting people completely off their faces. <laughs> but it is, you know, it really is an assault on the senses. And once Martin and Alma, these two sort of key characters, enter the woods, almost nothing 
I feel makes sense from like an audience perspective anymore. You've yeah. kind of got like moments of their journey are completely lost. Like the film just cuts to black. So mm-hmm. you, you miss pieces of the puzzle. There's loads of strobe lighting. You've got that Clint Mansell score, which is massively oppressive. So everything is designed to make you feel lost. And it all feels very, very visceral. Mm-hmm. What was your experience of kind of watching? I was just so glad that we were able to see it in the cinema. Mm -hmm. I think that there was the mild concern that we were going to have to watch it at home. I didn't want to have to watch this at home. And I'm not adverse to watching stuff in my house. I've spent almost 18 months doing that at this point and it's really not the end of the world. But there were just in terms of some things that I wanted to get the like full sensory overload experience of i had knew really that this was going to be something i'd wanted to see in the big screen so i was really glad that we got to do that i will say that it was very odd to be watching a covid film Mm. and that's covid in the sense that it was filmed during the height of last year's wave of things here in the uk Mm And also that we are, when we saw it as well, we were still under kind of restrictions here in the UK. So there's just something very surreal about like sitting in a cinema full of people, socially distanced, wearing masks and watching a film film. that's referring to the fact that there is this virus that's (laughs) ravaging the country and then like all of these people are having to interact under COVID protocols. Like he goes in and to the checkpoint when he arrives mm. to the forest and has to have a test and yeah. all of this stuff. And it just felt this weird, like, oh yeah, because that's what life has been like. Hasn't yeah, it? it's very much a COVID film. It's like very much a COVID film without being a film about COVID. Yeah. So there are those, as you say, like those hints at the beginning about the state of the world. And then even the themes that underpin this film. So the idea of going back to nature and the sort of lack of control that we have Mm -hmm. in the face of the natural world um, and people sort of going back to this kind of push and pull between sort of mythology and folklore and body horror and science and paranoia and mistrust and all of these kinds of elements are very much feelings that we've been battling with for the past like 18 months. Yeah, 100%. And I think one of the strong things about the film actually is that it manages to not make any direct like verbal allusions might not be COVID the pandemic at all no it doesn't mention COVID it doesn't say anything it just says you know there are just really offhand comments to like oh mm. you know all oh, things have been weird blah blah I hope you don't mind having to do this you know it's just blah 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 I have yeah. to be safe and all these things that like obviously for us at the moment just feel so extremely like relevant to our own experiences mm. but I feel like if you watched it 20 years down the line it's it you would probably consider it in the same way as you did maybe when you watched like I know that when we watched Alien during mm-hmm. quarantine the elements of Alien where they're talking about quarantining obviously become more heightened because it's yeah. just dependent on our experience right now but probably if I'd seen that at the time I wouldn't be necessarily like oh my god that's exactly what we've mm. had to be doing because it's not necessarily relevant to our lives so I think mm. there is a level of like it's not time specific no. because it hasn't made direct reference to Covid mm. if that makes sense there might be like 18 year olds that watch it in 20 years that are like blink and you miss it don't even notice yeah, those elements like at the a... beginning it's kind of yeah it's interesting isn't it and also as you were saying the sort of like back to basics nature of Wheatley's storytelling Mm -hmm. and methods with this which was sort of imposed by Covid but have also done something quite interesting. It's it's funny to think actually how often in some of his films he like uses external outdoor spaces Mm -hmm. anyway so actually they didn't necessarily feel like oh 
this is taking place outside mm. because it was probably easier for him to do no. that under the restrictions. It just made sense. It just and makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the fact that there was this kind of shift towards finding comfort mm. in going outdoors because it was like the only thing that we could do last year. Yeah. The only thing we could do last year was to go for a walk, was to go to the woods, all this stuff. Those traditionally are the spaces that you can go to where you are going to interact with people less often. Like you could go, yeah. especially where we are living in Norfolk, you know we could go to a forest and you probably wouldn't see anyone particularly close because it's a quiet space so yeah like it it felt very relatable in Mm. in those ways yeah couple of other things about the experience of this film i was quite shocked by the level of violence like it was very graphic wasn't expecting it to be so graphic but i thought it was very effective yeah that you find your yourself laughing kind of squeamishly because you don't know what else to do there's that one moment in it where Reese Shearsmith has the two main protagonists in his tent and he's obviously been drugging them and such and there's the with the axe and he says, Ugh. you know, I have to get rid of the your toes and stuff and like it was so deeply stressful but like so hilarious mm. at the same time. Like, you, I didn't know whether to, like, laugh or to, like, bury my head in your right. shoulder because I felt physically unwell. It definitely toys with your expectations yeah. as well around what might happen, what does happen, like, where the film is going to go next, all of that kind of thing. And Reese Shearsmith actually, like, perfectly embodies that, like, weird balance between, like darkness and humour like he's funny but you definitely can't trust him I'm sure we'll come to talk about the performances in a second but I think the casting of him is always so interesting in stuff because he he's so convincing as like an everyman you know as like someone you might recognise as like your friend's dad or someone you might know from the pub or something like that but there's also this like really unsettling undercurrent Mm. with him where you don't know if it's gonna turn so suddenly yeah and that's why i'm always so apprehensive when he gets cast and stuff because you always kind of go like oh like which way is he gonna go Mm -hmm. is he gonna be like light-hearted fun slightly quirky bit off the wall or is he gonna go like full deeply unsettling Mm -hmm. like the worst thing that you can imagine and i just think like that's why he's so great, I yeah. think, sometimes. Is he's that very he just... softly spoken as well, yeah. isn't he? He's, like, very softly spoken in his approach. But especially in this, he's just absolutely brutal. I mean, his performance in this is, is, like, the standout for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think if it had been anyone else, I just don't think I would have enjoyed it as much because, like, you just don't know which way he's going to go. No, he was an excellent choice, wasn't he? He yeah. was, like, the best performance. I did like Joel Fry as Martin and Elora as Alma. Yeah. I thought they were, like, a very strong pairing as well. Like, I... I felt invested in them yeah. and I did care about what happened to them. They felt very like well realised, like you kind of, he gives off that vibe of someone that works in a lab. And yeah. Sort of like, you know, just a bit like, bit socially awkward. Definitely. Doesn't, not really particularly confident, just, just sort of wants to get there and do what he needs to do, doesn't want to have to make small talk or anything like that. And um, she definitely has the vibe of someone that is just used to having to like deal with people's nonsense a lot of the time mm-hmm. and like just, she knows what's best. But yeah, I think I they were their bond as well as the film develops mm. I think is really interesting and it's sort of this like nice dynamic that is like very much centered mm. at, in the film so there's sort of four key performances or performers in this film what did you think of Hayley Squires as Olivia Wendell the the kind of scientist that they're journeying towards finding <sighs> I just don't know what was going on there and 
I just found her so insufferable. I thought her performance, I have to say, no offence, Hayley Squires, drove me bananas. I just, and I can't tell, I've been thinking about it a lot, I can't tell if it's because I don't think the character of Olivia is supposed to be particularly likeable, I suppose. No, I don't think she is. But Um, there is just something about that performance that doesn't sit well with me and it's odd really because i really like hayley squires i, I loved her in i daniel blake mm-hmm. like she's phenomenal in that film so i don't think it's necessarily her capabilities she's not she's not bad is she no she's not bad at, no 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 so I don't there was think, something really irritating though yeah she was just really annoying really really her annoying. intense stare was just annoying it was the, me it was the intensity of the stare the aloofness the voice like just the strangeness of it i don't know i haven't really i've been thinking about it a lot and i can't wholly put a name to it i I think it probably doesn't help that the elements of this film that i didn't think were were as strong mostly surrounded her and i felt that sort of the second half or maybe not the, the final third of this film didn't work as well as the rest and there were sort of like odd moments that i thought were a bit disjointed and weird like when she's studying like the hammer of the witch's book but she's also a scientist and it just felt a bit weird like i think her she had the sort of the weaker moments of the film i think unfortunately when it gets to that i suppose final third she has to do so much heavy lifting in Mm -hmm. terms of propelling the plot forward that her role falls to being slightly basil exposition and that she has to do all of the explaining like she has to explain all of the reason behind the weirdness with zach who's Mm -hmm. we learn is her husband who's the reese shearsmith character she has to explain all of that she has to explain what she's been doing in the woods she has to explain why she's gone off the grid why she's doing this weird dj she has to explain why she's like getting really into like rave culture she has to explain the stuff behind the book like she she basically has to explain everything that's been happening in a way that like almost undoes yeah it's a really it's a really it's like you can kind of see what it's designed to do as we said this kind of balance between science and rationalism and mythology and magic so you've got like a really early introduction in this film to the mythology of Parnag Feg, who's this sort of pagan ancient spirit that lives in the forest. And, you know, it's it's unknowable, it's ungraspable, it's unseeable. And then you've, yeah, you've got the use of the scientist, of someone trying to make sense of something otherworldly, especially at the moment in our current context, our sort of need to communicate and control nature and sort mm-hmm. of decode and understand everything. But I don't know, it, the narrative does take a very deliberate turn away from the kind of mythology and magic towards the science. And then it leans so heavily on the science and sort of Olivia's mission to try and contact and conquer this ancient force. But I, I got, a, a, I got quite confused because they started talking about like organisms or whatever and how it was there was more and it was nearest to the stone and ramifications across the world and the, the science and I was like what the fuck is happening the science of stuff is not particularly clear and I didn't necessarily like I had to get home afterwards and try and read like I had to read <laughs> wikipedia which to their credit was very thorough oh, good. Well um done. in terms of like trying to understand what exactly it was that she was setting out to do and what yeah i didn't know what her end game was really based on why she was like doing 
an industrial noise band yeah. in the middle of the forest. It's that weird episode of Doctor Who suddenly just it happened, was just, didn't it? Yeah, I just... I, but then I, at the same time, Martin started doing some sort of sacrament ritual towards the end. And I was like, well, well, are you like... I just... I think my, my big thing with it is that I didn't necessarily mind this, like purposeful blurring between the science and the mythology side Mm -hmm. of stuff because I think that's a really interesting perspective or an an interesting thing to structure a narrative device around whilst also trying to be extremely rational from Mm -hmm. a scientific point of view so I understand that that is like an age old tension tension yeah Yeah. those two things are like been at loggerheads you know since the dawn of time so I understand the need to to focus and the decision to focus a narrative around that but i'd almost wished they'd just chosen a lane but they'd also they talk way too much about the science like yeah. it was injecting way too much explanation but not but not with any like sense of coming out of it of going like oh yes i understand why they are doing it like, i did yeah i felt like it either needed to make no sense at all or make perfect sense and we were like somewhere in the middle i felt that it was over explaining to the point where they were undoing all my, of the other my my level of understanding yeah. i was becoming more confused the more they were talking about it mm. and then at one point i'm pretty sure i'm not sure if i'm imagining this but i'm pretty sure where she just like says like oh yeah don't overthink it and you just think like so you're yeah just... she does say that oh okay cool so you've you've explained all this stuff but then you are actually telling to one of the characters oh yeah no don't worry about it though yeah and it just i was irritated yeah, I feel like the final third, sort of by the time they reach the camp and Olivia, that's when it kind of comes undone um, and it's, for and, me. And it's interesting, actually, because I felt like it almost does feel like a film of two halves mm-hmm. in that regard, but like very markedly so. It's like you go through all this like trauma of getting lost and then encountering Zach mm. and then you go and you meet the Olivia character Mm. and I think I checked my watch at that point and I was like wow we've still got like such a lot Mm. of time left so this isn't even going to be like a small addendum to any of this this is like literally like oh you've reached the halfway point Mm -hmm. now we're going to take a sharp diversion and I think that that can work but for me it wasn't wholly successful. It was trying to juggle too many ideas and trying to blend them at the same time that didn't quite work. Yeah, 100%. Um, So yeah, I do agree with you. And it wasn't that, I I wasn't like entirely let down. Like I'm really pleased that Wheatley did something like this. I think he always has really interesting ideas. Mm, Yeah. I'm not so sure about the execution this time all the way through. I don't think it was consistent, but there were there were parts of it that I really, really liked. Um, I didn't love it as much as I wanted to love it. I think I would like to watch it again. And I think I would, you know, be like, oh, yeah, I quite like that film. But I don't think it's as strong as it could have been. No, not at all. I think in terms of like other I don't want to lump it in with like other folk horror things that we've seen over the last three, four or five years. But I was really looking forward forward to it but i just think it fell short for me execution wise and i think it almost tried to do too much yeah definitely whereas if it had just picked a few things and done them well i just think i would have probably enjoyed it a lot more yeah agreed so on to a bit of a deep dive into a film trilogy that lots of people have been talking about. I think Twitter has been positively ablaze with this in recent weeks. So the Fear Street trilogy is based on R.L. Stein's team 
horror book series of the same name. All three films are directed by Lee Janek and centre on a group of teens who work to break a curse that's been haunting their town of Shadyside for hundreds of years. So these three films are each set in a different time period. We've got Fear Street 1666, 1978 and 1994, but they are in fact released the other way round. So we start with 94 first and we channel backwards to 1966. So the, uh, a film adaptation of Fear Street actually began development back in 2015 with Janet hired to direct in 2017. The filming for the trilogy took place back to back from March to September 2019 with the film set for a theatrical release in June 2020. However, obviously, the trilogy was pulled from the schedule because of the pandemic and then following the acquisition of 21st Century Fox by Disney, the distribution deal was ended with 20th Century Studios and the distribution rights were given to Netflix. So these films came out week weekly on Netflix throughout July. Yes, Uh, we, like everyone else in the world, were watching them week by week. It's worth noting that these films got an R-restricted rating, so no one... For our benefit in the UK, no one under 17 can be admitted to watch this film unless accompanied by an adult. So it's like somewhere between the 15 and 18 certificate that we have. Sure. Odd placement. But I think that came as a surprise to some people because, of course, the books originally were for young adults, for teens. Uh, So let's talk about our expectations and then we'll have a brief look at each film um, and then discuss our thoughts overall. So... What were your expectations going into this? Because I think we've both probably mentioned before that we grew up on things like Goosebumps and Point Horror. I don't remember Fear Street being as popular in the UK, though. I personally didn't ever read the Fear Street books. I was, like, obsessed with Goosebumps and then transitioned into Point Horror. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I ever knowingly read a Fear Street book at all. If, If I did had no impact i don't um, think they were ever stocked in my local library no because i don't think i remember borrowing every single like yeah. book i could get my hand of like on like that and they weren't there so i don't know whether they i don't they know must if they have were been, big in the uk but they I'm, must have been published here but maybe they just weren't necessarily like the cultural phenomenon that they appear to have been in the state i didn't necessarily have any expectations from like a point of view of like being obsessed with the books it's not like when we saw the goosebumps film yes and we were like hyped because we were all goosebump obsessives as mm-hmm. kids um i was looking forward to it in the sense that it was going to be a, like a nice fun weekly activity i sort of tried to manage my expectations somewhat just for fear of ruining my enjoyment of it having been down that lane many times before it did seem extremely relevant to our interests though and i just was really intrigued by the fact that they were doing these three time periods the posters were very intriguing Mm. you know like the trailer just like the aesthetics and the way that it looked it just seemed very up our alley and i think that with the time periods in particular it was really easy for us to like make immediate references off the bat without having even seen the films to like the type of vibe they were going to be conjuring Mm -hmm. so with like 94 it was fairly evident they were going to be going for like a scream you know i know what you did last summer type vibe with 78 it was obviously going to be going down the kind of like 70s slasher Halloween, Friday the 13th 13th, that kind of vibe and the only reference point i suppose we had for 1666 was the witch (laughs) the witch the witch yes Um, yes so yeah it just seemed very very relevant to our interests so i was looking forward to it trying not to be too hyped cautiously optimistic (laughs) as always yeah i think i was too like 
My really early expectations were that they'd be for a young teen audience because, mm, yes. you know, the books are for a younger audience. And I was really surprised by that R rating and wondered how that would work and kind of whether they'd be trying to go for something a lot darker than the source material. Uh-huh. And as you say, like the idea of sort of an event is always really fun. You've got that kind of nostalgia to 94 and 78. There was some... Well, they were just really billing them as yeah. like event viewing. Yeah. And, and it's just... not... We haven't had that in a while. Exactly. I don't, I don't think we've ever had an event, event where three films in a trilogy were released week on week within yeah. a period of time. So that was really fun. Knew that we could meet up and watch them yeah. together. Um, had a couple of sort of notable castings like... Maya Hawke and um, Sadie Sink Mm -hmm. so that was quite nice and also the fact that they were journeying backwards rather than forwards yes I was very intrigued by because it's again not really that isn't typical no it's usually the way around so um, I couldn't really work out why they had chosen to do that in advance anyway time machine thank god spoiler there wasn't a time machine imagine if there'd been a time machine so we saw Fear Street Part 1, 1994, first. It stars Kiana Madeira, Olivia Scott Welch, Benjamin Flores Jr., Julia Rayhopwald, Fred Hetchinger, Ashley Zuckerman, Daryl Britt Gibson and Maya Hawke. It was released on Netflix on the 2nd of July. And this film opens with the murder of several mall employees by a young man in Shadyside which is dubbed the murder capital of the United States. So many of the Shadyside teenagers believe that this is the result of the witch Sarah Fear, who placed a curse on the town before being executed for witchcraft back in 1666. So uh, we meet a group of teens who are led by Dina, who has recently broken up with her girlfriend, Sam. We also meet Josh, who is Dina's little brother, and their friends, Simon and Kate. Sam gets in a car accident and because of that accident she disturbs the witch's grave and the group are stalked by a series of killers across the town. I thought we would just try and split this by what we liked and what we didn't like. So shall we begin with what we liked? Well, I loved the clearly intentional bait of having a big star right at the beginning who then does the not. Drew Barrymore of Fear Street. The Drew Barrymore of Fear Street. Um, my queen, Maya Hawke. Absolute bait, using her to like lure you in. And then she's obviously, obviously... Gone within two seconds. Offed within Rude. the last five to ten. So many scream homages, actually. And the fact she pulls the killer's mask off as well, yeah. as so she sees the killer's face. It's just... I liked that. I obviously loved every single needle drop <laughs> in the face. Yep. Yeah as it was actual slap in the face i just drops there. i mean the first one she's listening to nine inch nails of course Love who isn't that. listening to closer um i will say that some of them were not time specific yeah uh, they didn't do the research enough some there, of them they? came out in 1995 but i've listened to the playlist upon spotify multiple times because it just felt very relevant to our interests i don't know I did feel like having white zombies more human than human and Nine Inch Nails Closer was like a particular jab in my side. How dare you? Um, I don't know. It's really interesting when you've got like throwback stuff in 2021 when like so much of the current like gonna age myself about 5,000 years here but like so much of like the teen aesthetic at the moment is like so 90s referential Mm. that unfortunately I think while I was watching it I was like really really into the fact that it was like 
the 90s and it's like this time period that like you and I remember Mm -hmm. even loosely Mm -hmm. but at the same time it felt like a 2021 version of what the 90s are so I both actually like that sort of straddles for me is that I really did like it but I also sort of didn't like it because it felt like this slightly anachronistic version of the 90s a bit like the way that i mean i don't watch riverdale so please don't hit me but the excuse way that, me don't but do you know what i mean though it's the way that like riverdale. riverdale is like riverdale was purposefully set in a time zone yeah. that cannot be pinpointed but that's what i mean though it didn't feel like the 90s for me it just felt like this strange alternate universe 90s. yeah alternate universe 90s um yeah. i think the performances in it are like good i was delighted to see my king, Ashley Zuckerman. I've learned a lot about Ashley see, Zuckerman recently. My my favourite thing about us watching this was me going like, oh my God, Nate from Succession. And you're going like, At oh, the time, okay. I hadn't watched season one of Succession. You so. hadn't watched it. And then even you started referring to him as Nate from Succession. Oh, like, oh Nate's here. I couldn't remember his character's name. So. <laughs> Nick Good. Oh yes, of course, Nick, Mr. Good. Nick Good. Um, Cop Bad. Good Cop Bad. I don't know, I was just delighted to see him with think is great so yeah i think i think it was really interesting the way that they were putting the focus on a queer relationship that felt very good interesting a change from the usual um i think it's quite rare within i could be wrong it's fairly rare there are some examples that it's fairly rare within a slasher film well i was gonna say relationship in particular so also within the context of the films being referenced Mm -hmm. that within that film that's not really been done as much before so that felt like a real positive what were some of the things that you enjoyed quite similar to you i think like it's very much homage to the slasher genre in particular from the very opening as you say like drew barrymore maya hawk and you've also got like friday the 13th halloween also a bit like cabin in the woodsy stranger things yes it all of these See, kinds of that's the thing i think it really banks on oh it's totally like banking on the same stranger things 80s nostalgia with the 90s nostalgia it's just like they've swapped two different malls really but it's sort of enjoyable in the way that those other films Mm -hmm. and tv are in quite a loose way same with the the music all very distinctly 90s slap in the face level but great as a spotify playlist to Mm -hmm. listen to afterwards I liked the queer love story and the focus on that. I thought some of the killers were genuinely creepy, like the really um, unsettling. The Camp Nightwing killer with the sack on his head. Ugh. Billy Barker, who's like the Mike Myers style child killer with the like baby face. <laughs> He's so great. The milkman murderer. So they were they were creepy. There are some genuinely shocking violent moments, like fully hollered out loud with the bread slicer i think what it does so well is that it almost lulls you into a really false sense of like because you we knew what the rating was in advance and the first half of it is sort of like it's gonna be like stranger things yeah cozy it's very much like set up cozy horror yeah it sort of sets everything up doesn't it you know they end up sort of having to go on this like mission and then all of a sudden it just gets so intensely violent in a way that i thought was actually very effective mm. catches you off guard doesn't completely it? catches you off guard what didn't you like about this film well i thought it was very exposition heavy until yes. the back half so it's funny it very much feels like it is just like lots of talking lots of explaining like this division between the two towns mm-hmm. you know lots of explanation about like why these two girls can't be together like all of this talking 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 mm-hmm. like explaining to me what's going on and then like very much like everyone starts dying at the tail end of it but because of that it then gets quite confusing towards 
the end. When they they introduced the Seraphim mythology as well, there's like quite a lot to keep up with with and that. It, it felt long. Yes. So it is. I was struggling to keep up the sort of curse slash witch stuff slash multiple it, it, killers slash. What it wasn't clear. No, it was a little bit messy, and yeah, I would agree with that definitely. I found some of the dialogue a bit clunky as well. <laughs> yeah. I didn't warm to Dina initially because I thought her she just had some of the clunkiest lines of the bunch actually. I think which is unfair for her, but I found that quite hard. Um, I also found it quite weird that, as interesting as it was that things took like a very violent turn, I couldn't get my head around who this was aimed at because it's like too violent for a younger audience, but the dialogue seemed pitched at that younger audience. How old are you supposed to be for this to be... I, I don't know. It was pitched kind of unevenly. It was a bit odd. It's really interesting to me because I felt like all of the like reference points were aimed at people our age Mm -hmm. and older yeah and 90s nostalgia like we're gonna have that like but it feels like it was like beyond the music which is the type of stuff that like because some of the the needle drops are things that like were around in the 90s but things that i've not started to enjoy until i was older in the same way that like i think kids now still probably listen to nirvana Mm. but there were also like other cultural reference points in the film which i think like the fact that you know the little brother is like on like an AOL chat thing like all of that stuff that's not going to make any sense to anyone under the age of like 25 30 because it's just not something you understand so the tone there in terms of who it's pitched to like it felt very much like is it us because all of the like signifiers Mm. feel like things that people of our age would kind of go like oh yeah I remember that oh yeah I remember that but the dialogue it felt very much like when a room full of adults is trying to make a film about teenagers but make the dialogue hasn't come from teens but the dialogue (laughs) hasn't come or or what they're trying to do is make a film about teenagers but not about how people interacted when they were teenagers but what they think like a 2021 teen interacts like does that make sense yes like it felt really out of kilter there in that like Mm. a lot of what was happening dialogue wise didn't even necessarily fit like the aesthetic tone of the film no 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 I thought it was really uneven like that I completely agree so overall feeling fun but unbalanced it was really unbalanced and i was really intrigued to see what they were gonna do going forward so shaky start then we move into fear street part 2 1978 and the events of the camp nightmare massacre which are mentioned in part one so we are now within a film which stars sadie sink emily rudd ryan simpkins mccabe sly ted sutherland Gillian jacobs kiana madeira benjamin flores jr and olivia scott welch again and this was released on the 9th of july so we're in camp nightwing it's 1978 we meet ziggy and her sister cindy who are having very different experiences to one another at the camp we also meet cindy's boyfriend tommy Uh, her former friend Alice and Alice's boyfriend Arnie and we learn more about the Seraphir mythology and the witch's curse before I'm I'm trying to wrap this up really succinctly before Tommy basically becomes possessed by the witch and goes on a killing spree and this film is also bookended in the present so in 1994 with Dina and Sam where Dina's trying to break this curse so in trying to break this curse she is told about the story of Camp Nightwing I was just going to say, your explanation of this makes so much more sense to me than the film. So that's, thank you. I struggled to write it. No, no, no. Um, Brilliant. Let's talk positives. Tell me some positives. What did you like about this film? 
I love Sadie Sink. Sadie Sink, what a pleasure. I just think she's delightful. Love her. I just, she was one of my favourite things of that most recent season of Stranger Things. Oh my God. Ziggy's a great name as well. She's delightful. Like, she's very, very good. I really enjoyed her performance in this. I sort of quite liked the dynamic between her and her slightly more straight-laced sister. So did I. It was was convincing. the sisterly thing. Yeah, it was very, very convincing, I think. Ziggy's supposed to be the one that's like slightly more rebellious or slightly more does what she she wants whereas her sister who poor is, girl gets treated like the group of girls literally tries to hang her to hang at her. the beginning it's genuinely dist- like carry levels of bullying yeah i don't know i just i did like the period setting i thought it was more convincing mm-hmm. than the 1994 setting um i think maybe it's because it was in this camp environment it's funny actually because the entire time unfortunately now anytime i see anything that's set in a summer camp i immediately think of wet hot america yeah summer. i knew you were gonna say that um which is the 80s so it's not the same time period but it was just making me think of wet hot american summer not a bad thing but i was thinking about that the entire time uh the music great loved it did find some of it slightly on the nose i.e when we meet alice the bad girl bad girl she's got, she wears eyeliner she wears she's eyeliner she's got short she bleach there so, yeah. and also the the runaways are playing Oh my god. If like, I never have to hear Cherry Bomb guys, in a film again, it will be too soon. But I loved the musical keys. Nice use of Neil Diamond. Nice use of Neil. The only thing I will say on the music front is that there was such an egregious use of um, Fog Hat, which <laughs> I'm sorry, is canonically a Dazed and Confused only song. And it's quite f- bold, isn't it? It's such a bold choice. To, like, no offence or anything. Like, Richard Linklater does not hold the monopoly on that song. But he also sort of does because it's so... There are some films I feel just that that's what happens and you can't really use them it's elsewhere. So, it's a dazed and confused song. You can't you can't appropriate it. I'm so sorry. But so the music was good. I don't know. I just... I did like the summer camp setting. I just think it was... I feel like it's a good narrative device to, like bring all these people together mm-hmm. in a way where they sort of like have to for they're forced to sort of create dynamics and have to get on with each other and have to work mm-hmm. together and that's always the thing i suppose in things that are set in summer camps is that it's basically it's such a strange place isn't it like well, a summer camp is so bizarre we don't have anything like that no. here like traditionally going away f- to summer camp it's just like it doesn't happen in the No, UK. that would be like boarding school. <laughs> yeah, you have no, like we don't have it. You'd go really. to like maybe summer school for like a week or something, mm-hmm. but you'd go home every night. Yeah, you'd just you be like Yeah, there's no summer camp thing so going it's a, on. So it's doubly bizarre actually for us. Yeah, but. and I think that in a, in a way that's why I find it so intriguing, I think, because it's just that weird mythology alien concept, alien concept yeah. for me. What about you? I liked the opening, dig the whole summer camp slasher vibe, buy into the 70s setting far more than the 90s setting, but I yeah. think I enjoyed it. It just felt more convincing. Yeah, I think it did. There's obviously lots of nice references and touch points that to things I like. So you've got Jason Voorhees and Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp. There's quite a lot of Stephen King in this. So mm. Nick and Ziggy discuss his books. There's a visual nod to The Shining when Tommy breaks down the door with an axe carrying the pig's blood there's all of these things so obviously i'm going to like that i really liked sadie as ziggy and i liked her relationship with her sister i thought maybe the characters were actually probably slightly more three-dimensional in this one or we got to know them a bit better before things 
kicked off. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just seem to think that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought there were some quite good tie-ins with part one. So there were sort of fleshed out stories and characters that were referenced in 94 that sort of you learn a bit more about within this film. Well, yeah, because you obviously you've got like young Ziggy... Um, and Ziggy, as an adult, does turn up at the end mm-hmm. of 94. And then obviously you be- it becomes apparent that you've got the good brothers. Mm-hmm. So you've got young Nick. And then you've also got his brother. The good bad brothers. The good bad brothers, who is the mayor mm-hmm. in the 1994 version. Yeah, so it seems like origins. And I think, yeah, yeah, you get to see the origins, origins. of everything, which is, you know, this, which is fun. So, I mean, fundamentally, it made sense that we'd move backwards because I was yeah. like, what? how are they going to justify moving backwards? So that made sense. What did you not like about this film? What did I not like? Um, Apart from the fact that it was really rather long. No one needs a two-hour slasher film. No, I just lost track of what was happening towards the end. I think the thing I found with 94 and 78 is that when they start to bring in the mythology of Sarah Fear... Fear. um, so much mythology, April. (laughs) I honestly... Basically, from the minute they go down into the cave... They spend like 45 minutes in the cave talking about Sarah Fear. I lost generally any concept of what was happening yeah. how they got there why they were there and then they're finding all this stuff and at that point i just truly zoned out and i was just thinking about like i thought this was just about her hand like the whole thing is about her hand why am i having to like learn all this stuff so i just found it quite confusing and it is long it's very long. so long i still think that it banks so heavily on the absolute nostalgia bait oh yeah vibe of Stranger Things so as much as I love Sadie Sink in this it's just inevitably hard to then not immediately think like it's it's putting Mayor Hawk in the first film yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah, thinking yeah. like oh you're Robin from Stranger Things and you're in a shopping mall yeah. you notoriously have had bad experiences in neon soaked shopping yeah, malls yeah. so like putting Sadie Sink in this I'm just thinking about Stranger Things the whole time and that's not her fault but it's like when you put her from one period setting into oh, yeah. another mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about that yeah i think you're right they are relying on those things quite a lot there's like at once too much story here and also not enough story to keep me gripped i think the thing i found with it is that it it almost as it is that middle film it does have to sort of explain a lot of the mythological stuff that came up in 94 it has to then expand upon that enough so that when we get to the 1666 we understand or are familiar with it to kind of understand what's happening there but the problem is is you've got this like sleepaway camp slasher type mm. film but then you've got all this mythology, mythology. Sort of stuff, and the two things still even though we'd had an entire first film where it's trying to explain why these like killers from this town are related to this yeah. mythological stuff they t- feel like two I still things. wasn't understanding no. why man with why are they there man with axe is controlled by hand? which hand i still wasn't <laughs> i couldn't it. draw the line either no. and then when with this film after they spent 45 minutes in a cave and i didn't pay attention to it i then wikied it and i was like okay so they genuinely spent 45 minutes talking about this mythology and yet at the same time in the recap seems to me like they actually just went over what happened in the first one so i didn't i wasn't actually learning anything new you were just recapping what you'd already told us about seraphir also this is such a stupid gripe but the thing is ashley zuckerman who plays nick good has such a distinctive look that you're trying to convince me that this young teen is him they just don't I'm like sorry, your, your gripe is that they miscast the young Nick Good because he's not look, the thing Nate is, enough. 
Sadie Sink and Gillian Jacobs. That makes sense to me. In my head, it makes sense. The grown-up Ziggy, the child Ziggy. Perfect sense to me. Ashley Zuckerman has weird eyes. The teen was too traditionally handsome. Maybe he had an accident. <laughs> no. And his eyes went Anyway, weird. that's just a petty thing. Yeah. I just wasn't... I, the entire time I was just going like, there's no way this teen, like, dreamboat teen handsome. I like the fact that I thought... <laughs> I thought Ashley like, Zuckerman was, like, more handsome than the child. Steph, he's got, like, bug eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he's budget Jake Gyllenhaal. He's budget Jake So Gyllenhaal. sorry, Ashley. You are well fit, so it's fine. <laughs> the other thing that I wasn't keen on was the big twist which is essentially that we're supposed to think that Cindy survives and we're being told about Camp Nightwing from the adult Cindy and Ziggy dies. That's supposed to be the twist. I forgot. And yet the whole time I was like, well, it's clearly Ziggy. And then they twist it and you go like, well, yeah, obviously. Everyone knew that. (laughs) Sorry, I was supposed to think it was Cindy. I thought it was Ziggy, but now I'm supposed to unthink it's Ziggy and think it's Cindy when it's Ziggy. I forgot. The whole point was that in order to make it stop, someone has to die. So that's literally the point of the 94, is that they have to make one of them die yeah. in order for it to stop. And yet I had forgotten. And then, funnily enough, in the third film, which we're going on to, I forgot that point again. And then I had to read and remember that point again in order to make some of the plot points in the third one make sense. Yeah. So overall feeling of 78 is that look and feel is good retreads quite a lot of ground from the first film too long too long didn't really necessarily give me anything new it felt very similar to 94 in that i think it suffered from the same problems yes 100 percent. fear street part 3 1666 released on the 16th of july so this is the origin story of sarah fear herself set in 1666 in which sarah and her lover hannah are accused of witchcraft and they are murdered so sarah swears vengeance before she is hanged hence the curse we are then transported back to 1994 for the rest of the film where dina and her friends plot to set a trap for the shady side killers save sam from her horrible possession and break the witch's curse which we have just learned about so this stars faces from the first two films which is quite a nice touch so we've got kiana madeira back ashley zuckerman Gillian jacobs olivia scott welch benjamin flores jr daryl brick gibson and others i will say before we talk about what we liked about this film I fully banked on the fact that I would not like this third one and that it would be the weakest one can't tell you why except sometimes historical drama films can be well cringe and I just did not expect from the trailer to like this one I thought it would be the weakest yeah I felt the same really I was slightly apprehensive it was just going to be really embarrassing were you pleasantly surprised I really liked this. I think I actually liked it the best of the three of them, perhaps. I think it definitely did a lot to dispel my fear that it was just going to be an extremely embarrassing reenactment of old times. Like LARPing. Yeah, I was a little bit, especially because they're bringing back like all of the cast from the other episodes. Like, I think I was just slightly fearful that it was going to be this weird... I think... Amdram. Yeah, I, Amdram. Like, I think it's because I initially was like, oh, not that I expected there to be time travel, but... I 
I was like, if they all go, if they all like zap back in time. I mean, it did seem like it was gonna, it was setting itself up for a time travel thing. I couldn't work out how we could go so far back in time in a way that made sense. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed the way that it does go back to 94, actually, because I feel like the first half of this really does successfully explain. It's way more coherent, probably because it's simpler. <laughs> I understood. That- like the motivations I understood what was happening I understood who these people were it was just nice to get some actual context for the two previous right. films that I'd endured that I had no idea what was going on and I did feel a bit like do you know what if you just show me this at the beginning simple effective emotionally driven quite horrifying if you'd shown me Fine. this Got it. at the start or even in the middle I would have gone like actually yeah this does actually make sense I understand what is happening now yeah. I understand putting the curse at the end might have actually been I've backtracked now now maybe putting that at the end was a bad idea I understand why it's at the end but I also think like if this had just been at the beginning I wouldn't have gone like but why is this witch angry well it does mean that they had to spend the first two films explaining what we see in the third one yeah Whereas they could have just told us at the beginning. <laughs> if you'd shown me this, I would and then have gone they like... They could have just like hunted some killers for I two. would have gone like, oh, that's why she's so mad. Cool, cool, cool. So I, I liked I liked the way that you get the explanation and then you're taken back to 94 and the entire thing is just, you know, thrashed out. Loved that. Um, really pleased they gave Nick good long hair. <laughs> Beautiful. What a hottie. Flowing. With his little bug eyes. And his nice bug eyes and his beard. <laughs> Loved that for me. Even he, though he does in fact turn out to be bad. Bad good. And I'm I'm going to say now, I think you're probably going to end up saying, I think I was very apprehensive that it was just going to be like Robert Eggers ripoff. And it is a but little bit. But in a bit, shit way. But in a shit yes. way. And it is a little bit Robert Eggers. Well, you know, you go back in time to that period, which it's the problem mania is that that's my, what's going to happen. That's my like preferred touch point. That's, you know, I like the witch. I think Robert Eggers <laughs> did a good job with it. So I think that unfortunately well, I was just a bit like... We're oh, now oh. reviewing the witch. Great <laughs> well, film. No, it's just that I was concerned that it was going to be a bit like... I have seen Robert Eggers the witch so I'm going to do my version of it but I think that I don't know it just gave context in a way that was just very useful it was just so useful to get this period appropriate <laughs> context finally I was like I think the thing was I I had been so starved of real understanding of what was happening that by the time we got to this third film I was just so fucking grateful to be given something that actually made sense feed me what does this mean I just didn't feel like I was stupid anymore yeah yeah because I was like I I'm stupid. I don't understand the teen <laughs> film. <laughs> Literally spent our whole lifetime, 32 years being spooky, and I don't get this. Real confusing. Also, that scene in the church with the children, oh, mortifying. Horrible. Genuinely mortifying. Genuinely I was so pleased. Grim. I was gleeful. <laughs> Hooray, they lost their eyes. Um, so pleased by good that. Good payoff. Um, I believe you touched on Ashley Zuckerman as uh, Solomon Good and his horny. Hot. So that was that was great. Hot. Glad to see Sarah and Hannah, the queer storyline returns. Good times. Great. Yeah. The real shocker for me, actually, is that we spend quite a lot of time back in 1994. It was long, so wasn't it? It's like the, the final 20 minutes or so attempts to wrap up the entire story. <laughs> And actually, almost successfully, ties everything together yeah. succinctly in a way that meant that it did make sense, finally, yeah. in the end. Yeah, it did. Once I got past the fact that I couldn't remember why they'd suddenly switched and were no longer following Sam's blood and were now following Dina's, <laughs> that's where I got lost and then I had to be reminded about the diet. Anyway, um, I was also really grateful that we didn't have a Needle Drop 1966 soundtrack with, like, green sleeves or something, I don't know. Like, <laughs> No, we said it was going to be like Gregorian Monk chant. 
Or like sixteen sixty six versions of pop songs. A sixteen sixty six version of Britney Spears' top. Is track. it like is it like what the John Lewis advert when they do like the breathy acoustic, <laughs> yeah. but they do some sort of sixteen sixty six folk version of like the White Stripes or something? <laughs> Seven Nation Army. Yeah. <laughs> um, what didn't you like about this film? I don't understand what the accent. <laughs> it bordered on insulting. <laughs> As an Irish person, I'm insulted. I, I don't understand why were they Irish? It's meant to be set in Ohio. So I don't know a huge amount. I don't know if that's historically accurate that there was a great settlement of Irish people in Ohio. The thing is, I just don't think a majority of the settlements in North America in that time period would have been so Irish heavy. <laughs> so Irish heavy that you're like, Guys, there is no way we can do this film without you being Irish. You have to be Irish. I'm sorry. No way. And they're like, oh, I'm not very good at an Irish accent. No, it doesn't matter. You have to do it. It's fine. American audiences won't notice. I just don't understand. It was such a choice that I think I, the only explanation I had that I said to you, which was just probably me being quite forgiving, was going like, maybe it was just easier for the American actors to do an Irish accent. Maybe the the idea of doing like an English accent it didn't sound easy too much of a stretch it didn't sound easy no and I couldn't get past it it's like the minute you realise I was like no I'm, I'm so sorry I can't this is this is the thing I'm going to focus on for the remainder of this so yeah. that that I did not enjoy I think that was the main that's thing that's my only one <laughs> that was my main all thing. in all 9 out of 10 no not 9 out of 10 but actually yes it was just minus the accents the Charming. accents I did get a little bit confused back in 1994 because I couldn't I'm quite still not, work out I'm still not convinced I understand how they switched from sam's blood to dina's blood and i had to spend ages googling it a thing i did like was the reveal that it was solomon oh yeah that was the problem and not i mean we could also see that coming justice but you say that was it the fact that his name is nick good yes (laughs) that really set the red flags up for you and he's a cop and he's a cop his name is nick Nick good and he's a cop Hmm. That fucker's bad. ACAB. Yes. But overall feeling way more coherent was, than the other two. I just two. understood what was going on. It was refreshing. <laughs> and I was surprised that it drew all three films together surprisingly well. Yeah, I think I'm just really interested to know if Robert Eggers has seen it. Maybe we'll ask him. I wish he had Twitter. Let us know. He's too cool for Twitter. Robert Eggers, let us know. Maybe when he's doing press for The Northman. Maybe he'll do a Twitter Q&A and we can submit a question. Maybe we, he'll, he'll do a Reddit AMA and we can ask him if he's seen it. Overall, what did you think of the way that these films were released and packaged? I was very intrigued to learn that the intention wasn't to release these on a streamer because for me they have like such extreme Netflix energy. Extreme streaming energy. Extreme Netflix streaming energy. That the idea of actually them having a theatrical release every week for 3 weeks seemed baffling to me. I feel like they've probably had more viewership at home oh god so much than they ever would have done in the thing cinema. is if i'd gone to the cinema to see the first one as well i don't know how would i i would have felt about persisting after that first one i think if i'd seen the first one i think i would have been inclined to see the second one but after the second one i think i just would have been like and nah. then we would have missed the best we would have bit. missed the best bit i don't know how that would have worked but I, I it was nice to have something to do every week <laughs> I, we've we've talked about the fact that we like week by week drops oh yeah rather than the like 
oh, you've got eight episodes, mm-hmm. mainline it, and then try and navigate the internet because someone's already managed to watch it and you're only on episode one mm. and it's already been ruined for you. So I think yeah. actually it was quite nice to have like a weekly thing to look forward to. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the pandemic did these films in particular a favour because 100%. they work so much better on Netflix than they would have done in the cinema, I personally think. Yeah, definitely. I think it's pretty bold to release three films concurrently in the cinema like that. Yes. And I'm not sure it would have worked. What is your ranking of the films then? The thing I struggled with when I tried to rank these was that it's very hard to think of them individually. Like in my head, because the first two seem to just go over the same yeah. things, it was really hard to pick out what was actually happening mm. in, in each of them so i think my ranking i settled on was 1666 mm-hmm. because i do think it was the most coherent easily the most easy to digest the way that it does actually tie up the three films that came that was before quite clever it. i was impressed like especially when it sets out at the beginning and it is the period setting i was really like how the fuck mm-hmm. are they going to wind this up so i was pretty like oh actually i'm you know this is a very interesting way to do it so that seemed to work really well for me so 1666 1994 and i think that 78 was the weakest for me funnily enough i agree entirely that is also my ranking initially i thought oh maybe i liked 78 a bit more but i don't think i did because i don't remember any of it well this is exactly what i did i got quite bored in the middle i didn't get bored during 94 i just thought it wasn't great but i wasn't bored but 78 I got a little bit bored in the middle. I think the way that 94 is structured in that you have all of the exposition at the beginning and Mm. then you have the slasher intense stuff towards the end, Mm. the back half of it. I think that's why I felt that it was better than 78, Mm -hmm. which almost flipped it a little bit. And I, and I think 94 does set the tone and it sets the seeds, doesn't it? And yeah, agreed. Wow, we're in agreement. That's amazing. My God, we're um, not To be honest, it also made me want to watch the original films they were all referencing. Yes. And also things like, you haven't seen Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark yet, I haven't have you? Yet, no. I really enjoyed that. That is definitely, I would say, pitch to... Still quite creepy, but pitched to more of a YA audience. But I think it's really good. I really enjoyed it. And also The Final Girls, which is a film that I've watched recently. Again, I'm surprised by how much I like it. Because I remember fully going into it initially thinking like this is going to be quite crap, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure it'll be fun. But I actually think it's really good. I Um, really like it. I think it's really good. Yeah. So it made me want to watch that again as Mm -hmm. a film, which obviously pays homage to lots of those things. Do we think they work, these films work as a gateway for sort of young horror audiences? It's really hard as people of our age that probably grew up watching a lot of like the 90s slasher Mm. stuff and then obviously for you in particular when you've kind of gone down this avenue of being really invested in horror and even for me with my very limited knowledge of stuff I I liked all the references and it was really easy to understand Mm. what the touch points were for each of them I feel like it would be interesting to see if if younger audiences did then go back and check out what the reference Mm -hmm. points are because I think Lee Janik to her credit has done a lot of talking about like what the reference points are and i don't think it's subtle i don't think it's like over obvious or too on the nose but i do think they are apart from the soundtracks yeah apart from the soundtracks (laughs) but they are good like homages to those period specific things that actually i think it would like if you'd never seen like friday the 13th if you've never seen Mm -hmm. halloween i feel like for us when we were kids those were the older, yeah. quote unquote, older mm. films that we would then watch because they were the things that were almost being thrown back to in like the 
90s, yeah, yeah. 2000s, 2000s stuff. Yeah. But I don't know how much that happens for young people now. So I do feel like it would be an interesting gateway. It's quite interesting to have these films. I have absolutely no point of reference for what younger audiences think of these films because mm. everyone I know who's watched these films are in their 30s like me. Yeah. And we're doing it as a sort of a bit of a nostalgia kick. The reactions have definitely been mixed in a very understandable way but I'd be really interested to see what younger people think I I mean obviously it's always a good thing if they act as a gateway into other films and yeah, other definitely. things but um at least we had a we had a good time it was nice it was different we had a laugh it was fun fun time it did make me want to watch strange things though no I said that about 17 times should we should we just go and watch stranger things again sure okay right let's yep. do that so after all of that obsession of the week what is yours please um, I've kind of talked a little bit about mine in that I recently had to self-isolate for 10 days. I was absolutely fine, but just a precaution. And during that time, managed to mainline, well, season one of Succession, which was a great thing to tune into pretty much every single evening. Uh, gave me something to enjoy before bed and get stressed about before I <laughs> chilled out. And I also started... Uh, embarking on a watch of the Phantasm films, which are films that I have never watched in my life and am watching for another podcast, which I'm going to be talking about these films on. So I literally watched five Phantasm films pretty much back to back, which again is a real, must be an obsession of the week because it's one of the only things that I thought about for like 10 days, which was a very interesting and surprising journey which I will talk about again in future. But yes, lots of TV and film. I also feel like I have to acknowledge the fact that last time I sang an ode to Rob Rako, who is a very talented, handsome person. And I was just giving my reasonings for thinking that we would be really good friends, if not soulmates, because I genuinely believe that I do. I think we'd be a great match. Very grateful to him for listening and for responding to... <laughs> my comments which were weird and I didn't think he was going to hear them um he responded with such grace and I can't wait for us to go out on our date it's going to be sport. what a lovely lovely sport thanks so much for not being completely weirded out I was only half joking and that just goes to prove that whatever you put out there in the ether someone's going to listen to and it might just be the person that you're talking about shoot your shot guys <sighs> thanks Rob What's yours? Uh, I've started watching The Sopranos. Big news, guys. Oh, shit. Yeah, forgot. Started watching The Sopranos. That was the other big news. Finally, yeah. I've reached the point where I've got nothing else to do with my time. That makes it sound like it was your last resort. <laughs> last resort. Rude. No, I just had been trying to hold on to it for a special occasion, but the special occasion did not come, so I've just decided to do it. And it's been a delight, loving life, halfway through season two currently. Really trying not to mainline it too quickly because I want to savour it. Yes, so yeah. I find You don't want to lose focus. No, in the way that you can't watch multiple episodes of Succession back to back, I try and keep it to a, a cool two with Sopranos. Yeah, I can't I think do that's any fair. more than that because otherwise I just get too overwhelmed. Just love everyone in it. Tony Soprano, hot stuff. Hot hot stuff also um i watched the woodstock 99 documentary last week it's objectively fine i would be interested to hear someone else's take on it i have my issues but i've basically just spent all week listening to corn so that's cool isn't it who knew that would be my takeaway from that would be corner good and also just want to mention bob odenkirk because oh bless bob had a really stressful 24 hours thinking about Bob Odenkirk because he fell sick on the set of Better Call Saul. We watched Nobody last week. Great film. Just had a very nice time thinking about Bob Odenkirk in that film. He's great in that film. And then he fell ill and we were just deeply stressed that something bad 
bad, bad, bad had happened. But he's okay. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. So love you, Bob. Love you, Bob. So that's it for me. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst. You can find us on all the usual pod places, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe and review us there as well. Instagram, we're at The Thirst Pod. Our blog is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. And you can also find us on Facebook. Bye. Bye.